2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I am talking to three authors, Helena Hansen, Jules Netherland, and David Hertzberg. Um, Helena Hansen is an addiction psychiatrist, an anthropologist, and a professor of psychiatry and anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles. Jules Netherland is a sociologist and policy advocate and managing director of the Department of Research and Academic Engagement at the Drug Policy Alliance. And David Herzberg is a historian and professor of history at the State University of New York at Buffalo. And the three of them are authors of the brand new book just out from the University of California Press called White Out, how Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. We are so excited to welcome all three of them to the show today. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourselves and then how you came to write White Out together.
0: Thanks for that question. I volunteered among the three of us to get this story started but I invite David and Jules to chime in um, and tell their their version of the story uh, to, to begin with myself, I'm a little bit of an odd bird in medicine in that inspired by my work just after graduating from college at the peak of AIDS activism, this was the early 90s, I decided to try to bring, what I was thinking of as community-based research and community participatory research into medicine, into the heart of medicine, because I saw how remote mainstream medicine was from the concerns of people on the ground, uh, particularly very marginalized people in um, the it, at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And I was really inspired by people who were themselves HIV positive or taking care of HIV positive loved ones and um, really collaborating with with doctors, activists, doctors who saw how neglected uh, AIDS was as, as an area of medical practice. I was really inspired to try to bring some of the ethos of that activism into mainstream medicine and bring some critical thinking about how we get the health outcomes that we get into the mainstream of of medicine. And so I decided to study anthropology too. I I got an MD PhD in anthropology and along the way really fell in love with um, the field of addiction treatment. And uh, as I went along, um, made a really interesting observation about addiction medicine. It was a field that was just getting its start by the Early 2000s, when I was wrapping up my MD, PhD, I ended up working on a clinical trial with one of my professors of buprenorphine, which was a new medication um, for opioid addiction that was heralded by those who were testing it as something that was going to, quote unquote, change the culture of medicine. People were getting very excited about buprenorphine. They thought that it was going to lead addiction to be seen among medical practitioners as another disease or disorder, biomedical condition, just like asthma, diabetes, or hypertension. This was the way that people were talking about it on the, in the clinic where I was helping with a study of buprenorphine. And another thing that I noticed as I started my residency training in psychiatry on my way to becoming an addiction psychiatrist is that, oddly enough, I was working in one of the country's largest public hospitals, Bellevue Hospital, uh, which is, you know, the patient population mostly Medicaid insured or uninsured, very, um, you know, disproportionately black and brown patients. And I noticed that the people that were coming to Bellevue for buprenorphine when it was first made available were white, and that they were migrating in from Long Island, from Staten Island, from more from more suburban areas. And this was odd to me, so I started to kind of track that. That became my pet project during my residency training. And by the time I did a postdoc, this is what I decided to turn to. I wanted to explain some of these patterns and really understand where the field of addiction medicine was, was coming from, um, you know, as a brand new field and also uh the demographics, the race uh, and class of the new treatment that heralded the field of addiction medicine, buprenorphine. So I I began to write about it. And then I got contacted by somebody named Jules Netherland, who was then at the New York Academy of Medicine, who said she also had been doing research on buprenorphine and wanted to get together and talk. And I thought, how exciting. Um, I haven't met other people who are working in this area and have the critical lens that I was trying to bring to it. Um, so she and I had a meeting and immediately hit it off. You know, I, I just saw in Jules somebody who really was asking the right questions and making the right observations, had an amazing analytical mind. She and I started collaborating. And very soon the two of us got invited to a conference organized by David Hirschberg on gender and the drug war, which is an unusual um, way of framing the drug war. We don't often talk about gender when it comes to the drug war, but David had done a lot of pathbreaking uh, scholarship in that area historically, you know, going back more than a century to look at how gender and drugs mm-hmm. and addiction had been represented. Um, and race was often, you know, a major piece of that as well. You know, he'd been looking at, I'll leave a lot of the details to David, but he had been looking at this kind of um, very unacknowledged and exclusive middle-class white and often female legal narcotics market, Um, you know, and and phenomena such as the post-World War II um, uh, rise in the use of barbiturates and later benzodiazepines like Xanax, um, mother's little helper type medications, and looking at the gender and race of that drug market, which was a fascinating take and somehow aligned with the, what we, what Jules and I were seeing with op- the opioid crisis and buprenorphine. So the three of us really, as, as it turns out, found amongst ourselves a trio that could deepen in many different ways a very complicated story from three different vantage points. I, working in the clinic and doing really anthropological studies of the field of addiction medicine, and Jules having, as a sociologist, a critical lens, but actually working in the world of policy, directly doing policy advocacy and David having the, these deep historical lenses to bring to show you know, that the current opioid crisis is kind of an iteration of a pattern that goes back more than a century um, in the United States. So the three of us ended up coming together around this book and related projects. That's my version of it. <laughs> so let me turn it over to Jules and David for any additions.
3: Well, thanks, Helena. This is this is Jules. Uh, I want to say this has been one of the most enjoyable and richest collaborations of my career. Um, so I'm really delighted that it came together the way it did. And I'll just briefly say that. Um, I worked for years as um, a public health researcher, and then at some point went back and, and got my PhD in medical sociology. And so, but I've never worked in the academy, and I've always had this sort of one foot in applied work and another foot in um, sort of a more academic, critical lens on that work, uh, first in public health and then and then later um, moving to drug policy, um, which has really provided me the opportunity to to be sort of in uh in on the ground of of a lot of these policy discussions and movements, but also having this critical lens as a medical sociologist. And just briefly in terms of of buprenorphine, which was the topic of of my dissertation, I think I, I at the time, was working on a large um, national multi-site study that was looking to integrate... Uh, buprenorphine into HIV care settings. But I got really captivated by the passage of the Drug Addiction Treatment Act of 2000, which I'm sure we'll get into later, um, as this really revolutionary change in drug policy that nobody was talking about. Um, And so that really galvanized my interest. And then when I um, saw the work that Helena was doing; it seemed sort of like a natural collaboration. And then um, I have to say, I've always admired um, David's work, and so it was kind of a dream come true when we when we brought him into the project. So I'll turn it over to him to add anything he wants to add.
1: Yeah, I, I'll say yeah, that that at the moment that that um, Jules and Helena contacted me, I was I had sworn that I would I couldn't do anything uh, in addition to what. I was already what was already on my plate. I was trying to finish a book, the white market drugs, and I was um, working for opioid litigation. Uh, But these two people are so brilliant and so ethically compelling. And the kinds of questions that they were asking were um, just grabbed me so strongly that and I was so grateful to be able to be a part of these conversations that I um, that I, I broke my I broke my promise to myself, a, and have been really glad that I did. And obviously, I, I I have I have spent my career studying the psychoactive pharmaceuticals. And one of the things I've struggled against is the the blinding whiteness of my training as a human and as a scholar, and uh, and to get the the needed perspective to be able to analyze the things that I was studying, I've really depended on opportunities like this to get outside of what still when I was coming up uh, in the scholarly world, you know, my, my, um, my cohort of of graduate students was maybe, I mean, I think it was all white, and as were the professors. And, and so there was just a, a kind of a narrowness and a thinness to the way that we talked about things that, that I needed help to get outside of. So this, uh, this collaboration has been incredibly rewarding, And I'm so fortunate to get to work uh, with uh, Helena and Jules.
2: Well, for our listeners, um, the book is is really wonderful, and it also um it it's it's organized in kind of a unique way, where there are parts where um, the authors sort of use the royal we and and write collectively. And then there are parts where they break out. Um, from from each other, and you hear their different voices, and you hear their perspectives with their different lenses, from their different di- disciplinary training and backgrounds, and it's just um, very well done. Um, but before we we dive into the the deep uh, deep middle of the book, I wonder if um, you could tell us what is Whiteout's central argument. So what's what's your elevator pitch for it? <laughs>
1: Uh yeah, We've decided I oh, will start out uh, on this one. And the, from the biggest picture, what drew, uh, what drew us into the book and what we were trying to respond to is for very, very good reasons, um, there has been a lot of attention on the way anti-Black and anti-Brown racism has shaped American drug policy, American drug markets, the experiences of using and selling drugs. Um, and of course, race is a system that has multiple categories. And but we... Uh, we believed and had discovered that uh, ideas about whiteness, practices that um, that instantiate whiteness in our society, that these also had a really important role in shaping uh, the patterns of drug sales and use and and policies, uh, but that they had not been as centrally as central a part of the story. We know a lot more about how racism affected drug policy. I'm sorry, racist ideas of black people, for example. But we didn't have a uh, as good a grasp on how racist ideas about white people also shaped that story. And ultimately, uh, when we looked into this, uh, we came to a central argument that drug policy and drugs in America are segregated, like you know, like other aspects of American life have been in the 20th century. And this uh, this segregation between a system of drug circulation and drug policy that was uh, kind of the first class system. This is pharmaceuticals designed, uh, intended for white consumers who were supposed to be receiving those benefits and getting the best protections they could against their risks. Um, and the other, uh, the other side of the pharmaceutical tracks are these um, are prohibition markets where pretty much the same substances were sold in much more dangerous conditions to racialized people who were not seen as worthy of either access to the benefits Of psychoactive drugs or the benefits of protection against the risks of psychoactive drugs and so we argue that this system even though it is designed to benefit white consumers and in many cases does it actually harms everyone it doesn't harm everyone equally but everyone pays a cost and the opioid crisis is an example of one of the ways that white people have paid a cost for this segregated system of drugs in the US. We wanted to understand both the benefits and the harms uh, of that system.
2: There are a couple of concepts that are really central to your argument. um, And I wondered if you could give us kind of a quick primer on them, um, just so that all of our listeners are sort of on the same page. Um, Those are what you call technologies of whiteness and racial capitalism. Tell us what what do you mean by those those things?
3: Well, I'll, I'll try to uh, take on the technologies of whiteness one really briefly, and just to add to what David said so beautifully about um, the central argument of the book. You know, one of the things we know is that systems of white privilege and whiteness are invisible by design, and so I think part of the project of the book was to lay those bare. So we introduced the term technologies of whiteness to highlight that racial assumptions about white people and their qualities, such as being less susceptible to addiction, are invoked in ways that both influence and are shaped by institutional structures, laws, and regulations. We define technologies of whiteness as social technologies, such as policy or industry strategies or marketing, um, that maintain racial boundaries around biomedical uses of opioids. And our use of the term technologies refers to the um, racializing of policy regulations and marketing strategies specifically. So, in the case of the opioid crisis, people ranging from prescribing doctors to policymakers or neuroscientists and regulatory officials may have acted out of a sense of duty or social responsibility, but they acted within institutional structures such as selective marketing or prescribing guidelines for opioids that stem from implicit assumptions about whiteness. So, again, for example, that white patients may be less susceptible to addiction than people of color, or that uh, white patients who use opioids compulsively do so because of universal biological factors rather than a flawed character. Um, So these are really different assumptions um, operating for white people who use drugs compared to people of color who use drugs. And so in the book we focus on four main technologies of whiteness. Um, the first is addiction neuroscience and looking at the ways that brain science um, creates a universal subject that's assumed white, but is also stripped of any sort of social context. Um, and, and that, that um, underlying scientific assumption also made possible another technology of whiteness, which is new biotechnologies like Oxycontin and buprenorphine um, that were created for white markets, we argue. Um, and are more accessible to whites uh, because of market forces. The third one we we look at is drug regulation itself, and specifically changes to laws and regulation, like the Drug Addiction Treatment Act of 2000 that I mentioned before, um, which were explicitly designed for for what uh, regulators and and politicians called a new kind of addict um, that was really aimed at serving white suburban users. Um, and then the last one is pharmaceutical marketing. And we looked specifically at the marketing of oxycontin um, uh, and buprenorphine to white communities and the, and the ways in which uh, pharma used marketing strategies and images that would appeal specifically to white consumers. So those are just so, some examples of technologies of whiteness that, that we argue really um, shaped what ends up being this kind of bifurcated a drug policy that david was referring to um, um, that sort of segregates how we respond uh, to drug use and addiction uh, depending on um, the racial background of people who use drugs and i think i'll pause there and just turn it over to helena to talk about um, uh, racial capitalism which is another key piece yes
0: thank you so yeah the, i think the two concepts technologies of whiteness and racial capitalism are uh, very intertwined. So racial capitalism is a term that has been in circulation in the academy since the 1980s when Cedric Robinson, um, a political analyst um, coined the term. He was building on the work probably of a century prior of W. E. B. Du Bois and C. L. R. James, uh, really well-known black studies scholars who pointed out that um, capital in the American economy has long been rooted in racialized uh, systems. So, you know, the colonial appropriation of land from Native Americans, and then the forced extraction of labor from African, as well as Native Americans um, and indentured servant servants who at the time were, were other, racialized others. So uh, from the very beginning, the American, the colonial, um, American economy was based on racial hierarchy. And what Cedric Robinson was really theorizing had a lot more to do with the extraction of value from labor uh, than with stratified consumption, even though that's always been the case since the founding of the country, too, that certain people with certain racial identities had disproportionate access to certain kinds of consumer goods. What we're seeing now in 2023 is that, if we were to look particularly at consumption, consumer products, how products are developed and marketed, um, there's strong racial patterning there as well. And it has to do with who has the means to buy products, and also not to mention who is seen as legitimate recipients of certain kinds of products. That's especially true in, in medicine. So we know that um, medicine has an outsized influence on our economy. You know, As of 2021, almost 20% of our GDP was spent in the healthcare sector. That's an enormous amount of money. Um, so that's one thing. Um, so any racial dynamics that focus on the healthcare sector are gonna have a, a really big impact on our society as a whole. Um, and, and we also know that it's really clear, we've been reading over and over again, especially in light of COVID, how an um, how unequal access to healthcare and um, medications and vaccines and biotech devices is, you know, that's kind of the foundation for our system of healthcare and also our economy. But in this area, it also has a big impact on health outcomes. So you know, consumption and access to certain kinds of goods has a lot to do with who survives, who lives longer, who lives shorter lives. Um, And so racial capitalism is really at the core of contemporary biomedicine, and you might call it biocapitalism. You know, biocapitalism today rests not only on extraction of low-paid labor out of certain racialized groups, but also on healthcare consumer markets. Who has access to what kind of, um, of biomedical good? And so I think the other question is, well, how does all this this dynamic of racial capitalism? How does it relate to the opioid crisis? And that's where I think that um, Jules and David and I have been able to do a little bit more digging and critical reflection than um, many others who've written extensively about the opioid crisis, uh, because. Very often it's kind of taken for granted. I think there's on the one hand, a surprise, a shock value to the idea that white Americans and at certain points in time, even middle class to affluent white Americans were were dying of overdose at higher rates than other people. Um, One thing we start off our book with is the article that came out just before the election of Donald Trump as president that... um, by Angus Deaton and Anne Case about the decline in U.S. white life expectancy. And it showed that one of the strongest drivers of the decline in white life expectancy over the prior 20 years had been drug overdose. So there there has been widespread surprise, you know, that white people are dying at higher rates than other groups, because it, it has long been just a given that black and brown Americans were going to be dying off at higher rates than white Americans. And also this shock value, too, that they should die of drug overdose because the U.S. media and um, the political um, regimes in the United States have so long framed drug use as a black and brown problem rather than a white problem. So there's been a certain amount of drug, a certain amount of shock value to that, but very little analysis of how race had been used by opioid manufacturers and their allies in... Um, In drug policy and in drug regulation to to create markets, uh, opioid markets, that target white people that eventually became quite lethal. So, you know, racial capitalism has been more visible in the past when it comes to, for example, drugs that are marketed to black or brown people. Bidil is the classic example. It's a heart medication, a medication for heart failure that was marketed to black Americans initially. Um, And there was a lot of controversy about that FDA race-specific approval for Biodil to be used for Black Americans with heart failure, not um, people of other races. So that's gotten a lot of attention. But I think the reason why whiteness as a strategy that pharma manufacturers and their allies in government used to open a space for OxyContin and sister products to be very aggressively marketed to white Americans. I think the reason it's missed is that we we just have such an assumption. It's kind of like fish in water, fish not being able to see water, that whiteness is foundational to pharma marketing. I think as a society, we just take for granted that White Americans, particularly white Americans with good insurance that can pay for new uh, biomedical products, are the primary target for newly patented medications. Um, and pharma companies are really aware of that, you know, that they, they know their markets. They know that when they have an expensive patented new medication or device, that their primary market is going to be well-insured white Americans. Um, Also, when it comes to narcotics in particular, there's this association between narcotics and the danger of giving them to black and brown patients that have long been portrayed as as more susceptible to addiction than white Americans. Um, And so the manufacturers, when it came to this new new, um, slow-release formulation of opioids that uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, introduced, but that other companies quickly copied, you know, they were wise enough to associate the new opioids that they were introducing to the market with white consumers. Um, and to, and especially when it came to regulators, right, that these were, these were populations, especially well-insured and, um, well-off white Americans that weren't seen as susceptible to addiction and that were seen as quote unquote, trustworthy, when it came to prescribers working in clinics. So if you look at the early marketing materials that the pharmaceutical companies put out around um, OxyContin and sister products, they featured white images, often female white images, um, some of them elderly, um, because the image of the grandparent of the white soccer mom. These are images that aren't associated with addiction. So this is is the way that racial capitalism plays out in pharmaceutical marketing these days. You know, a a century after C.L.R. James and W.E.B. Du Bois were writing essentially about racial capitalism, this is how it plays out today. And so what we were able to do in this book is to uncover step-by-step how it actually works, the mechanism of how it works and how it has worked in opioid marketing with the the latest chapter um, having to do with the field of addiction medicine and the legitimacy that that field now has. It barely existed before OxyContin made it to market and then then was associated with an obvious overdose crisis. So a whole field of addiction medicine sprang up and it sprang up around a new consumer good buprenorphine, otherwise known as Suboxone, which is in itself an opioid. And the racial imagery and racial politics that went into legalizing the private office-based use and prescription of buprenorphine as a treatment for opioid addiction, that is a big part of the book. Um, and there there were conscious strategies involving the technologies of whiteness that Jules just laid out at every turn. To, it was a big political feat to get Buprenorphine as an opioid prescribed in private offices on a monthly basis for use in opioid addiction treatment. That was a huge political feat in a country that had long had very strong prohibitionist policies and where that kind of maintenance treatment with an opioid, um, the predecessor of buprenorphine being methadone, of course methadone having come about at a time in the late 60s, early 70s, when heroin addiction was associated with black and brown inner cities. So methadone had been very racialized in the other direction and had been very restricted and heavily regulated to this day. Methadone clinics are DEA surveilled. Uh, It's a very restrictive environment where patients are, for the most part, required to come in daily to take doses under observation. When the um, when the opioid crisis, the the white opioid crisis often seemed to be affecting suburbanites and more affluent people came around by the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, you you see congressional records of testimony to Congress talking about the fact that methadone is not appropriate for quote-unquote suburban um, opioid use. So the problem of suburban youth who are, who are getting overdoses from opioids. Uh, this was research that really Jules did. Um, but it's if you look at the records closely, there is coded racial language at every turn responsible for that feat, that, that legal feat, policy feat of getting a whole area of addiction medicine legalized and placed into private offices.
2: Thank you. Um, you all do such a wonderful job with this um, these concepts that could, uh, you know, maybe at first glance seem seem quite theoretical. Um, with showing how they really concretely apply to the opioid crisis, um, I wondered if we could zoom out for for just a little bit and talk about um, how the book is organized. So, um, what it's it's got a couple of parts to it. So, um, what um, what would a reader be getting themselves into?
1: That's a good question. Um, and as you said, the book has two parts. Uh, the first part is kind of a setting the stage and an introduction to the characters and the concepts that are involved in this story. And uh, when I say the characters, of course, I mean, drug marketers, drug policymakers, drug advocates, drug consumers, all of these things, but I also mean the three of us, uh, because we in each in our own ways, uh, participate in the story and we tell the story from certain vantage points. I guess that's what we hope is one of the, um, one of the benefits of the book is that we, uh, the three of us really have, have gotten engaged with this through a bunch of different and intersecting ways that affect how we tell the story. And so we each, um, primarily narrate a chapter in this first part that introduces ourselves and introduces the main, um, concepts. That, that we use to understand what's going on. Uh, and t- two of those concepts are so important, these technologies of whiteness and racial capitalism, that they get their own chapter, uh, which the three of us put together in that, in that first part. So once the first part has set the stage, the second part puts them into operation to look at what happened with three of the most significant opioids that structured the crisis and responses to the crisis. So there's a chapter on OxyContin and how uh, ideas about whiteness and those technologies of whiteness like pharmaceutical marketing and neuroscience, all this stuff, how they shaped the trajectory of OxyContin. There's a chapter on buprenorphine, uh, as Helena already said, uh, quite a bit about um, how whiteness was just fundamental to the trajectory of that drug. And then there's a chapter on heroin, which makes this kind of, uh, at the time, unexpected return into the story Uh, of whiteness um, with increasing numbers of people turning to heroin when the um, pharmaceutical spigots were turned off. Then the book concludes with uh, an attempt to envision what we could have instead of racial capitalism, this system that has been wreaking such harm and doing such a terrible job uh, of enabling people to get the benefits of opioids while protecting them from the very real harms associated with opioids and we each talk about how we try to push against racial capitalism and try to work towards some other way of thinking about, talking about, practicing and governing drug markets that would be, uh, that would do a better job uh, of protecting the people and communities that we care about.
2: Thanks, David. So in in typical New Books Network fashion, we will work our way now through the chapters. Um, Well, I've got a question about part one and a question about part two and a question about the conclusion. So um, in part one of the book, you each write a chapter about how technologies of whiteness are at work in, you say, the clinic, the state house, and the archive. So your your various uh, um, professional domains. Um, Can you tell us what you found?
0: Yes. Hi. So I think I'll start off with a word about the clinic. Um, And that's easy for me because I was actually working in addiction clinics at the time when this revolution of addiction medicine as a field in reaction to the opioid crisis, which was widely perceived to be a white crisis, um, you know, when all of that was unfolding, that was me. That was me training in medical school, and then residency, and then an addiction psychiatry fellowship. Um, and what I and I did though did that though as also an ethnographic field site as an anthropologist. So I, I like to joke that, but it was actually true that my going to medical school and then um, residency uh, to become a psychiatrist and then an, an addiction psychiatrist was actually my. Anthropological fieldwork. I was a participant observer and taking taking notes, field notes as I went. And the thing that was really striking, I think I already mentioned that I saw the demographics of the people who were being newly recruited into treatment with buprenorphine as addiction patients in these new addiction medicine clinics. I saw that they were disproportionately white and middle class. Um, so you know, as I mentioned, Bellevue Hospital. It is a place where if you encounter white patients, they tend to be recent immigrants from Eastern Europe that are uninsured um, or people who are, you know, unstably housed, have been on the streets for a while. Um, It was not usual to find in a Bellevue clinic people who were commuting in from Long Island uh, in their SUVs. That was not usual. And so that's what caught my attention. Um, What was interesting, though, as an anthropologist was to see the cultural work that was being done in the clinic. Um, So first of all, the whole field of addiction medicine, essentially, it did not exist in its current form until the late 90s, early 2000s, probably not even until the early 2000s. And it turns out that since that time, a number of new fellowships in addiction medicine have cropped up at medical schools across the country. The The idea of a fellowship in addiction medicine is a relatively new one. Um, And, you know, it's a field that is codifying itself. All of a sudden now there are exams that one can take to become certified in addiction medicine. This was a brand new thing. Prior to the late 90s, early 2000s, addiction was kind of a backwater field. There were um, more psychiatrists in that field than any other specialty uh, there were barely any addiction psychiatry fellowships. For the most part, the f- medical practitioners tried to avoid addicted patients. They didn't want to treat addiction pa- patients. Um, they were seen as really problematic and um, and also morally deficient. You know, these were patients that didn't take responsibility for themselves, didn't didn't take care of themselves, didn't follow doctors' orders. You know. Um, So in the early part of my own medical training, that was really a widespread attitude on the wards that if someone came in with a history of addiction, you avoided that patient and you really didn't expect very much from that patient in terms of being able to help them recover from whatever brought them to the hospital. So this idea of a a field of addiction medicine that's actually a specialty that has some uh, respect within the field of medicine as a useful field, that's a brand new thing. So what I was able to track was the various ways, the techniques um, of legitimizing addiction medicine as a field as the opioid crisis um, really loomed large over the field of medicine and medical practitioners were being won over to redefining addiction as a legitimate biomedical condition. Um, so there were a slate of articles in high-profile journals, such as Journal of American Medical Association, by the end of the 1990s, that were, um, you know, citing the evidence that addiction was actually a a, a Biomedical condition, a chronic condition, just like asthma, diabetes, and hypertension, it had similar heritability, similar relapse rates. Um, So it it required the same approach to treatment, long-term maintenance with medication. So that's where the idea of buprenorphine came in, redefining buprenorphine, which is an opioid, redefining it as a medication, not a drug of abuse. This was where I had a close-up view. I saw the ways that on a day-to-day basis, physicians would talk with patients and each other about buprenorphine as being very different than any kind of opioid abuse. It's like a vitamin. You have to take it every day as prescribed. Uh, this was the way that they talked to patients. So this was the cultural work that was being done to redefine uh, buprenorphine as a medication and treatment of patient with an opioid as treatment legitimate by medical treatment of addiction. And then there was a whole area of... Um, in medicine, of redefining addiction as a brain disease. So hand in hand with all of this work to legitimize uh, to legitimize addiction as a disease, is the idea that addiction is rooted not in habit or you know social environment. As a social scientist, I of course have done a lot of reading of my colleagues' work on how. The way that people use drugs is very contextually dependent. Um, you know, the the way that drugs are culturally framed and used has a lot to do with whether people um, run into problems with drug use later on and whether the way that they use drugs is even seen by their society as problematic use. So that's the treasure, tradition I came out of. But in medicine, the discourse now is very strongly around not social causes of addiction, not the fact that, you know, if you grow up in a family where drugs are used in response to um, emotional problems, you're much more likely to use them. If you have early childhood experiences with trauma, you're much more likely to have problem drug use. If you're in a community that has been over the generations disinvested, where the only places where people can get employment is in drug trade, then you're going to have a much higher likelihood of problems with drug use. If, you know, also all the things that um, lead people to have negative outcomes like incarceration, that's related to your social position. You're much more likely to be arrested and have all those kinds of consequences or have your child removed from your custody. Um, If you're a certain, if you're certain race, certain social class, that kind of context is completely taken out of the picture in, in medical Discourses these days. The emphasis is on defining addiction as a brain disease. Um, the image of the addicted person is often boiled down either to a scan of their brain or to the neurons, literally the cellular level or the molecular level. The the person and the context that they live in, their own identity, their gender, race, class that's taken out of the picture because the idea is that addiction is a universal brain disease um, and it should be treated as such. So that's the cultural technique that medicine has used to gain over the past couple decades, a lot more legitimacy for addiction medicine as a field. Um, and then there's this interesting counter discourse of deaths of despair. I think I already talked about the article that came out just before Trump, uh, Donald Trump was elected um, about the decline in U.S. white life expectancy. The authors of that article coined the term deaths of despair to explain why so many white Americans were dying of drug overdose and then secondarily from cirrhosis of the liver and suicide. Um, And they were pointing to Rust Belt America, where white, blue-collar workers had um, suffered from unemployment after mining industries, manufacturing industries, some of the basic employers had moved overseas. So they in contrast to brain to a brain disease model of addiction, they were coming up with actually a social and environmental explanation for drug overdose. And what's really fascinating. And this is something we track in the book is the way that medical practitioners have been able to ha- allow those two ideas to coexist when it comes to white patients. It's very racialized, but when it comes to white parent patients, the blame Uh, is taken off of those uh, addicted patients by, on the one hand, referring to brain disease models and the universals of, you know, this is a heritable biological condition that takes control, self-control away from people, so we can't blame them for their behavior. On the other hand, they've been able to acknowledge at the same time the impact of deindustrialization, unemployment, the disintegration of the the social ties um, and community networks that that sustain people. They've been able to do both of those at the same time when it comes to white patients and at the same time kind of continue a counter discourse, a counter narrative around black and brown patients as um, being morally deficient, being um, kind of inherently unable to control themselves, coming from pathological families where there isn't enough parenting and oversight. Um, that's, That's what we do in the book is to show how those two are held at the same time. Um, And so in the clinic, the attitudes of the prescribers and the practitioners mirror really the attitudes of society that have been our U.S. society uh, that has been able to hold these two tracks of drug policy. On the one hand, a medicalized track for white Americans and a criminalized track for black and brown Americans. We've been able to hold those at the same time, both function simultaneously. So now I'll pass it over to uh, to Jules. Uh,
3: thanks, Helena. Yeah, I was and I was super interested in in tracking some of these changing cultural um, stories that that Helena's talking about. How that translated into the policy arena. Really interested in this policy paradox that seemed like was being presented to policymakers as the perceived. Complexion of drug addiction was changing, um, and and I, I like Helen. I would consider myself sort of a participant participant observer. Uh, I work at the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a national advocacy organization uh, working to end the war on drugs. And I was at, at the time we were working on this book. Um, really deeply involved as a lobbyist in Albany working to change New York state drug policy, and then did a lot of interviewing of of colleagues across the country working in the drug policy reform movement to understand how is whiteness at work in the drug policy arena, given that for decades, right, drug policy has been dominated by this punitive criminal approach um, with the assumption, I think, that um, the people being punished were predominantly black and brown, so when um, the opioid crisis started uh, to change people's perceptions that the opioid problem was affecting white communities, um, what the book does is sort of trace, well, what did that, how did that play out in, in the policy arena? And, I, and I'll just give a couple of, of examples. So first, what we began to see were very unusual allies in a rhetorical shift where Republicans from historically very conservative districts were suddenly um, concerned about and lobbying for more harm reduction oriented and therapeutic responses to drug to drug use and, and in their districts in particular um, so we see a desire and some movement towards less punitive strategies such as an emphasis on access to naloxone which is a a medication that can uh, reverse uh, opioid overdose, Good Samaritan laws, which provide some immunity for people who call 911 in the case of an overdose. And a lot of that was driven by concerns about overdose in white communities coming from uh, white legislators who, you know, just days sometimes before um, or years before had been lobbying for things like harsher criminal uh, penalties for people who use drugs. So as, as Helena was alluding to, what's, what seems to be going on is that these more sort of, you know, I would say softer, more humane um, impulses to help people who use drugs um, driven, I would say driven largely by um, whiteness, Um, continue to coexist with more punitive structures and more punitive um, approaches. So the whole war on drugs apparatus that has been built over decades and designed to punish communities of color um, uh, hasn't gone away. In fact, we've even seen um, efforts to increase penalties for people who sell drugs, even as we've seen more um, therapeutic and harm reduction-oriented approaches for people who use drugs, right? And I and argue that there's a, that's assuming a racial dividing line between people who use and people who sell drugs. And then uh, uh, Helena also alluded to this um, idea that gets that we explore um, in this chapter about policymaking, about the power of the trope of white innocence uh, to drive uh, policy change in, in this era. Um, so those are just some of the examples of the kinds of things that we're looking at when we talk about um, technologies of whiteness in, in the in the state house. Um, and let me just turn it over to David to talk about what he saw in his archival work.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that um, that's kind of interesting, I guess, about this whole episode is, that, is this kind of strange naivete with which people approach uh, have approached this problem as if they're encountering, the things we're encountering is the first time uh, we're seeing them, the first the first time that addiction is cropping up among these people, uh, among these uh, people categorized as white who, for whom it is not a normal uh, event, it's not a, a normal uh, problem for their community and kind of inventing new ways to respond. And for a historian, of course, um, this this kind of framing that we have this new unprecedented phenomenon and we have to find new ways to respond to it. You always have to wonder a little bit, and for me, because I have spent many years writing about um, problems with addiction to pharmaceuticals in earlier eras, I was um, I was struck by this and I was curious about it. And uh, what what seemed to me a central requirement for all of these different responses to the opioid crisis was a massive project of forgetting historical precedents and forgetting, uh, for example, that uh, widespread use of psychoactive pharmaceuticals and uh, widespread experiences of the harms of using psychoactive pharmaceuticals, including addiction, but including a bunch of other potential problems as well, had in fact, been are a tradition in white middle class communities, people that uh, you know you could think of as the doctor visiting classes. That this was this was actually quite normal. And so then the question raises itself. Well, you know how how had this how had this been forgotten? How is the how is the the, the normality of these circumstances been and have disappeared? in this story about how we now need to invent all these new responses because this is this new situation. And um, in this case, the archives tell a really different story than the public discourse. It turns out throughout the 20th century, there have been periodic uh, crises of addiction to pharmaceuticals. So the first one in the late 19th century having to do particularly with morphine and cocaine. These were Uh, medications at this time, they were newly powerful drugs, thanks to technological advances like the isolation of active principles and the development of the hypodermic syringe. They were being used very widely without a lot of awareness of the kinds of dangers that, that that could produce. And it's not surprising that those dangers were most experienced by the people with the best access to the medical system these are the people who could afford to pay for doctors and and about whom doctors had been trained to care Uh, and people who expected to receive the benefits of new technologies and new consumer goods these were in america have traditionally been people categorized racially as white and so that's you had this uh you had a, a major opioid and cocaine crisis in the late 19th and early 20th century And then uh, there was a second round of crises uh, that stretched throughout the middle of the 20th century, focused on a new set of drugs, uh, sedatives like barbiturates and benzodiazepines like Valium uh, and amphetamine. And this is where you observe the key role of forgetting. Okay, so once you are aware that psychoactive drugs that can produce this that, that can lead to this kind of compulsive, harmful behavior that gets uh, ultimately called addiction, um, once you're aware of that, it seems like you might be careful uh, when introducing new products like that to market. Uh, but in part, because of the way American drug policy has been segregated, and uh, bad drug behavior has been attributed to racialized groups, uh, there's been this this um, uh, commitment to the idea that white people are relatively unlikely to be vulnerable to addiction because they what they want is health. They are health seeking, um, rational people. And so when addiction problems crop up amongst white communities, it must be because of some external factor that doesn't have anything to do with them as people so in the late 19th century it was this out of control uh new um markets for these new products and the regulatory state was almost non-existent and then in mid-century it was these uh the development of these huge new pharmaceutical companies who were trying to sell their products without um without sufficient care for the well-being of consumers and in particular Uh, a sexist medical system that preferred to throw pills at women um, rather than address their problems as the serious social and political issues that they were. So in order to sustain this idea that somehow despite being the majority of people using psychoactive drugs and experiencing harms like addiction, they've been the majority of people doing those behaviors since the late 19th century uh, in order to remain committed to this idea that somehow they were less likely to do those behaviors, you needed to forget the past, you needed to forget the previous episodes. So when you look in the archive, you see a century of headlines saying, uh, screaming about addiction is cropping up in places where it doesn't belong. Now you have people popping pills in suburban communities. It's all in the headlines. Uh, But they flash in the pan, they serve their purpose of reaffirming white innocence. And then they disappear, drop down the memory hole. And this is a, this is one of these technologies of whiteness. This way of sustaining ideas about whiteness by forgetting the actual history of people categorized as white.
2: Thank you. So that so that's part one: technologies of whiteness in the clinic, the state house, the archive. Part two consists of the book consists of um, what you call. Re, uh, really interesting perspective on this racial biographies of three opioids, Oxycontin, buprenorphine, and heroin. Um, I wondered if each of you could sort of take one of these racial biographies and and give us a summary of um, of uh, the trajectory there.
0: <laughs> Thank you. So I, I'll take the first one, Oxycontin, although I also invite um, David to hop in because he's done so much groundbreaking historical work in this area, OxyContin being the the pioneering um, medication in this new generation of sustained release or or slow-release capsule technology opioids. So OxyContin was developed by Purdue Pharma and approved by the FDA. In 1996, for use in moderate pain. And there were a lot of claims around um, Oxycontin as having low risk of addiction. And the claims were based, the, the manufacturer Purdue based these claims on the fact that a very old and very potent opioid, Oxycodone, was embedded in this capsule. That was the new technology, a capsule that only allowed a small amount of the oxycodone to come out of the capsule at any given time. So someone taking OxyContin was not gonna experience this, this rush of opioids to the brain and the, the, the really um, extreme euphoria that, um, that people who use opioids for pleasure are supposedly seeking You know, so this capsule was the technology that made Oxycontin addiction proof, so to speak. Um, And this is the drug, even though it was followed by a lot of other Me Too drugs put out by other manufacturers, this was the medication that's made headline news for the past few decades. Um, Well, almost three decades now, it's made headline news. Um, One of the questions that the ability of Purdue, the manufacturer of Oxycontin, the their ability to so aggressively market the medication, not just to the traditional markets for um, that that potency of opioid. Traditionally, up until OxyContin, potent opioids such as oxycodone um, and similar medications like morphine were really reserved for patients who had severe pain, like post-surgical pain coming out of a surgery. cancer pain you know the the really intense bone pain of cancer those were the kinds of patients who would get that type of opioid up until the oxycontin revolution and what oxycontin's manufacturers were able to do was to get oxycontin out to a much broader population so prior to 96 it was really cancer specialists and surgeons and people who dealt with very very severe pain that were the ones managing that kind of opioid. After the FDA approval of OxyContin in 96, all of a sudden, the floodgates were open for the manufacturer to go to primary care doctors uh, in every corner of the country. They tended to focus on predominantly white populations that had an insurance, a type of insurance that would pay for this new newly patented and very expensive opioid. So that was middle-class to affluent patients with private insurance and also veterans and certain categories of blue-collar workers who had um, insurance through their employers, through, through workers' comp that would cover this kind of pain treatment. And it's very clear if you map out where the prescriptions, the early prescriptions were for OxyContin, they were concentrated in predominantly white areas. Um, and the marketing efforts happened there. So um, so the story, the, the question that raises is how in the world was the manufacturer able to do that kind of aggressive marketing and get that kind of FDA approval in a country that has long been strongly prohibitionist? And part of the story is that OxyContin came along at a happy historical moment where the politics of pain in the United States were at a certain juncture, um, and they were racialized politics. So... You long had constituencies lobbying for easier access to opioids and other treatments for pain. Um, And also not only lobbying directly for medications, but lobbying for legitimacy of pain-related disorders as legitimate reasons to give people social security disability, for example. And then on the other hand, there was a political – these were kind of more more liberal, I would say – um, constituents who wanted more government benefits for people who are disabled by pain. Um, and there are a number of historians, including Keith Wailoo, who write very, um, very insightfully about this historically. On the other hand, there were more, uh, conservative, if you will, constituencies who are really concerned about extending social security benefits to, you know, uh, uh, possibly very, very large and expanding population of people with pain complaints that can never quite be verified by um, medical technologies. You can't verify if someone's pain by taking an x-ray or a biological test. So they're really worried about this. And um, the racialized part of this is that they raised the specter of the welfare queen, you know, who's long been a like a Black woman with too many children right who's capitalizing on social security maybe making false claims of pain uh disability related to pain so this was the kind of politics this was that was raging in the background and around you know right before oxycontin was introduced um there was on the one hand wide-scale deregulation of um of pharmaceutical industry in general the fda got a lot more relaxed in its um, reviews. And there were more close relationships between FDA officials and pharmaceutical industries with a lot of movement back and forth between the two. Uh, So overall, there was deregulation, but also federal uh, national politicians reached a compromise, the kind of liberal and the conservative uh, threads reached a compromise that we don't need to expand social security benefits to people with pain in order to be seen as, um, as compassionate towards people with pain, what we can do is make sure that white, the, the you know, the image of this was the legitimate pain p- patient who's a white person would have access to treatments. And so OxyContin came uh, along at just the right moment for this. Uh, so that's a part of what the story we tell of OxyContin, that deregulation happened and it happened because of racial politics around who has legitimate claims to um, to government benefits and deregulating access to pain medications was a part of that. Um, There's another piece of the the story, I think, that's well known having to do with um, pain as a fifth vital sign. The idea that actually the VA system promoted um, in the late '90s that pain was a serious problem; it was uh, an epidemic; it was undertreated, and the Joint Hospital Commission, the one that accredits hospitals, began requiring hospitals to give patients pain self-rating scales and treat pain levels as a fifth vital sign alongside high, uh, alongside blood pressure, heart rate, you know, um, temperature. So it, All of these things were kind of a perfect storm coming together because the idea that pain really needed to be taken seriously, that it was an epidemic, it was under-treated, that also was in the air. What we spend more time in our chapter on OxyContin telling the story of, which is lesser known, is the way that pharmaceutical companies and also collaborating neuroscientists interacted with this whole thread. Um, So neuroscience had a big, and neuroscience Often um, the misuse of neuroscientific evidence had a big role in legitimizing the really aggressive opioid marketing that Purdue started, but a lot of other pharmaceutical companies participated. So this idea of OxyContin as an addiction-proof biotechnology, I've talked about the slow release capsule, Um, and then later the the idea that opioid treatments for addiction um, could be opioids and legitimately be seen as, as treatments rather than addictive, um, addictive products in their own right. These things rested on the idea of addiction as a brain disease and the erasure of social environment as a cause of addiction. I, I think I already talked about that. Um, and one way that the pharmaceutical industry uh, worked this, you know, cultural logic of this was the way that they worked, introducing the idea of addiction as a brain disease and certain technologies being addiction-proof initially, later certain opioids being medications rather than um, drugs of abuse. Um, they were able to introduce those ideas by splitting populations and splitting what we might call addiction into different categories of disorder by race and often class. So it's we, we introduced the term pharmaceutical splitting, to describe the way that the imagery around pharmaceuticals and the way that neuroscientific evidence is spun split the dangers from the benefits by distinguishing conditions, different types of conditions, and distinguishing different types of populations um, from each other. So on the one hand, strongly distinguishing trustworthy patients from drug abusers. That was one strategy. And I mentioned all of the marketing Um, imagery that went into defining white patients, often um, middle-class patients, often either female patients or older patients. These are trustworthy patients that are at low risk of of substance use Um, versus abusers, kind of the unnamed other, the black and brown other that had long been associated with addiction and crime related to drugs so separating populations that was one big strategy another is separating the actual disorder so there's a lot of if you look at the marketing uh, materials a lot of um, very creative efforts by pharmaceutical manufacturers in distinguishing addiction from pseudo addiction so once oxycontin and sister products really took off and they sold and the rate of of opioid prescribing went up tenfold in many parts of the country Um, The overdose problem was obvious. And the response, the first response of the the opioid manufacturers was to work with neuroscientists to define a new disorder called pseudo addiction, which is somebody who is otherwise, you know, a a respected member of society who was introduced to opioids um, as a part of their pain treatment who begins to show behaviors that we might think of as addictive behaviors, asking for higher doses of the medication, um, hoarding the medication, getting it from other prescribers and using it more frequently. But this is not, in this case, addiction. It's actually pseudo addiction. And the treatment for pseudo addiction, which is actually under treatment of pain, is to give them higher doses to satisfy their need for pain control. So the, the field first started by creating a new disorder of pseudo addiction. The other thing later, as you track historically, the development of OxyContin and treatments for OxyContin is a shift in the language. So there's a whole area that of addiction treatment that is no longer called addiction treatment. It's called treatment for opioid use disorder. So a medicalizing of the language itself that's used strategically in ways that are very racialized. I've already went gone on too long, so I'll, I'll stop there, and I'll hand it over to Jules to talk about the next biography, which is of buprenorphine.
3: Thanks, Helena. and I'll, I think I can keep this one short because a lot of the strategies and logics that um, Helena just laid out, <clears throat> excuse me for OxyContin uh, also undergird uh, the the biography of buprenorphine. But really, buprenorphine is an incredible untold story of whiteness, driving a huge shift in drug policy in ways that were largely invisible. So, excuse me, the Drug Addiction Treatment Act of 2000 really reversed decades of drug policy that had prohibited doctors from prescribing narcotics to treat addiction. And we mentioned this before, but it was explicitly framed in the congressional debates Um, surrounding its passage that it was necessary to make this uh, monumental change in drug policy because there was, quote, a new kind of addict. And and this was done explicitly in contrast to methadone, which was described as, uh, and again, this is a quote, not appropriate for suburban users, right? So uh, this data 2000 is really surrounded by this racially coded language. Um, And this was all done to bring buprenorphine to market in a way that would distinguish it completely from methadone, which had been highly regulated. It still is and highly stigmatized and associated associated with uh, black and brown people predominantly. Um, And Helena has some, some great stuff in this chapter based on interviews she did with um, folks that were, were um, basically doing the work to get buprenorphine, um, uh, to market in a way that required this, again, this this big shift in drug policy. So it was really, data 2000 was really meant to bring addiction treatment into the medical mainstream. Um, and it was talked about the way that Prozac changed the treatment of depression, right? So buprenorphine, which was the only medication that was would be allowed under data 2000, um, allowed, would allow people addicted to opioids to receive a prescription from their doctor and take a medication for addiction in the privacy of their own home, just as they would take any medication for any medical condition, right? Because, and this, again, is based on some of the stuff that Helen has been talking about, that the understanding right now is that addiction is a brain disease, or at least that's the understanding for certain populations of people. So, if addiction is a brain disease, right, then the appropriate treatment is medication, versus, you know, what had dominated drug policy for years, this idea that addiction was a crime or a moral failing, right, in in which case the appropriate response is these more criminalized and punitive approaches. So through data 2000 and the bringing of buprenorphine to market, we see buprenorphine emerging as a white middle-class treatment for opioid use disorder. And the new approach was made possible Um, through a form of what we call narcotic exceptionalism, where buprenorphine, again, is carefully distinguished from methadone and other opioids like heroin and Oxycontin, um, even though it is an opioid, right? Um, And so that kind of narcotic exceptionalism was really required to to, um, legalize buprenorphine in a way that really um, had to marshal whiteness and these sort of understandings and logic about um, white white opioid users so once buprenorphine prescribing was made legal whiteness through pharmaceutical marketing and the ways that bup was specifically regulated and distributed it created um, a distinct track of clinical intervention instead of law enforcement for the so-called new white opioid user so in this in this uh, chapter we argue that buprenorphine treatment is a technology of whiteness it's a vehicle by which whiteness is defined and defended And it's a medication that solidifies the white middle-class social position of its users. And and indeed, what has played out is that buprenorphine still um, is a medication that is predominantly um, used by by white opioid users. Um, And and there's a lot in the chapter about why it's, uh, the way it was regulated makes it much less accessible um, to to folks from low-income communities and specifically from, from black and brown communities but I'm gonna leave it there and uh, turn it over to to David to talk about the biography of heroin.
1: Thanks, yeah, and hopefully I can also be efficient here because both of these stories so far have shown the way that when uh, authorities and public discourse seems like it is about drugs and the people who use them, in a lot of ways it's been about race. And because when we look at buprenorphine, or we look at OxyContin, we see white people, we in a lot of ways are talking about whiteness and our racial ideas about who white people are instead of pragmatically assessing, okay, what are the qualities of this substance? What is it? What are its benefits? What are its potential uh, risks? And race, this racial thinking um, just impedes an effort to develop a common sense, pragmatic approach to this set of consumer products in a way that Um, is different from say the the pragmatic way we approach the risks and benefits of automobiles or knives or or other things that uh, circulating goods. And heroin is a great example of this because it has a reputation or it had a reputation, I don't know if you talk to um, young people today, but through most of the 20th century, it had a reputation as the most feared, the quote, hardest of the hard drugs. Um, almost like a demonic force on the landscape, and that drew a lot of its power from its association through a lot of the 20th century with racialized groups. Um, but in fact, one way to think about heroin is one of, is as one of the 20th century's most enduring blockbuster drugs. It started out its life as a pharmaceutical. Uh, marketed um, in the late 19th century, starting in 1898, as an opioid that would benefit the presumptively white clients who went to see physicians for uh, problems with respiratory ailments primarily and also uh, with pain. And uh, it, in its, so in its first um, its first chapter in American history was as a white drug. And when I say a white drug, I mean a drug that nobody talked about race in connection with it because whiteness is invisible. If you don't in the sources as a historian in the U.S., if you see a source that doesn't mention the race of the people involved, you know that they're talking about white people. So it starts out as a white drug. And then um, for a set of complex reasons having to do with the um with the attempt to rebuild racial hierarchies in the U.S. after the end of slavery, in the in the new territory of these massive growing cities uh, and industrial landscapes of the early twentieth century, there were campaigns to um, to stamp out what were called vices, and these were uh, behaviors that white middle class reformers were really horrified by that they saw happening among the poorer and racialized and immigrant groups in cities. And um, as one of the behaviors that that these anti-vice campaigns targeted was drug use. And I'm gonna say this quite broadly, that meant uh, cigarette smoking, that meant alcohol drinking, and it also meant um, the use of opioids like morphine, by people who hadn't been sanctified by a doctor saying you deserve to use this and this is the right thing for you to do. As a result, it became more difficult for people who had developed the habit of using an opioid, perhaps smoking opening opium was one of the most commonly used forms of opioids outside of the medical system at this time, it became difficult to continue to get access to the drug. Smoking opium is bulky, it's smelly, um, and that makes it pretty easy to police and and stamp out. And so at this time, there was this other drug, heroin, that was a white drug. Its reputation was perfectly good. It was known as addictive, but hey, so were all opioids. Um, and this was odorless. It was quite potent and compact, and so you could um, it was a much better product uh, in for a market, where it's illegal. It's uh, prohibition markets select for the products that are easiest to smuggle in this way. And so you saw a shift from heroin being this kind of unremarkable, not that impressive medicine for white patients. And it got adopted by these um, racially mixed communities in poor urban neighborhoods as a more smugglable substitute for, um, for smoking opium. And in this way, heroin became off-white. The drug remained the same. People continued to use it for similar reasons, but the ideas about uh, the ideas about the drugs and the governance of the drugs of, of heroin changed dramatically, uh, and it became this disapproved of criminal uh, activity. And then uh, over time. an informal market infrastructure developed to sell heroin in the neighborhoods where the poor and often these um, Southern Eastern European immigrants lived. And over the course of the 20th century, the nature of who lived in those neighborhoods changed over time as uh, Southern Eastern European immigrants joined this undifferentiated political category of white and into those neighborhoods were segregated Um, African-Americans, Latinx populations, black and brown communities, who then were kind of segregated into neighborhoods where the heroin markets were. And so you saw another shift in the racial complexion of heroin, and heroin became a black and a brown drug uh, by the 1950s, and particularly the 1960s. And once again, I just want to emphasize, heroin was still the same drug. People, human beings, still used heroin for similar reasons, and they still faced potential risks and harms just the same. Humans and heroin had not changed, but the contexts of uh, how heroin was sold, where it was sold and other social and political factors determined who uh, were the consumers for uh, heroin, who were the sellers and so on. And, uh, and that's when it um, really cemented its reputation as this most fearsome of drug. It eventually comes back full circle to being a quote, white drug, in the aftermath of the opioid crisis, when uh, partially due to pharmaceutical companies promoting and lobbying for this response, instead of saying, well, it's our fault that addiction is is blossoming amongst the, the consumers of our products. They say, no, there's this kind of person called an abuser and they're coming in and and uh, buying drugs like OxyContin when they shouldn't. If you shut them out, if you shut out the quote addicts, the problem will disappear. Well, I mean, these were people who were very highly motivated to continue using opioids. They were cut off from the ability to buy these brand-named FDA-regulated products being sold by people whose job was to care for them. And there was the 20th century's most enduring blockbuster opioid able to be purchased in this situation because there was already a whole market designed to cater to people who weren't able to legally access the drugs. So heroin, once again, became a white drug. And that, as you already heard from Jules and Helna, really changed once more the reputation of what it meant to buy and use heroin and how authorities responded to you as a person who used heroin.
2: Thank you. That, well, that brings us to your conclusion. And I think, um, I think we'll go ahead and make this our final question too. Um, so the book's conclusion is a call for biosocial justice Um, Could you tell us what is biosocial justice and then what are some concrete actions that people can take to work towards it?
0: Uh, Thank you. So the term biosocial justice, we came up with that term for our conclusion really to signal two things. One is the term biosocial calls on us to acknowledge that the overdose crisis and the other really severe problems uh, related to substance use that we're seeing now are really rooted in social inequalities and in the toxic drug policies and toxic forms of biocapitalism, including racial capitalism, that we, we outline in the book. Even though those social forces have very palpable biological consequences, people are dying, you know, and much earlier than they would otherwise. Um, so, so the problems we're seeing are biosocial in nature with an emphasis on the social um, because bio has been the exclusive focus really of of my field of addiction medicine and of the the white tier of our current drug policies. Um, The other thing is we we have justice in the term, Uh, biosocial justice includes justice because given the rooting of the problems that we're seeing in the kinds of racial and social inequalities that our system is in our country is set up to perpetuate. Um, The treatment, the treatment for the problems that we're seeing is actually justice. And that is a form of justice, racial justice, social justice um, along lines of race and, um, and class. That is um, a form of justice that's going to call on us to make, changes to our policies and our, our practices that, on the one hand, really are oriented towards uh, the, the racial inequalities that that are have really driven the current overdose crisis, but at the same time really benefit white Americans just as much as black and brown Americans. So one thing I don't know that we've said as a part of this podcast is that in 2023, the rate of overdose death among Black Americans and Native Americans is higher than that of white Americans. So it's a long story of how that kind of um, shift has happened. But the truth is, um, it, and it has to do with the ways that Black Americans and Native Americans have been uh, particularly in a structural position to be eventually really hard hit by. Their disproportionate, not uh, lack of access to um, to treatments, to health services. The fact that overdose death risk does go along with, for example, unstable housing, unemployment, lack of social supports. All of the things that are really well documented to to hit Black and Brown Americans harder than white Americans. So there's. There's been a, a reversal of sorts over the past 20 years in the statistics around overdose. But really, the bottom line, if you look at the graphs of the continuing increase of overdose deaths in the United States, really almost every group, every ethnic racial group is affected. And the, the justice-oriented policies that we um, are advocating for, along with a lot of other groups, such as the drug policy lines, they benefit white Americans just as much as any other group. So the fundamental the fundamental take-home from our study is that the practices of whiteness and racial capital that have caused the current overdose crisis really hurt white Americans just as much as any other group and have disproportionately hit hurt white Americans at several junctures. So this call for justice is actually a call also to improve the health and longevity and well-being of white Americans just as much as anyone else. So, number one, universal health care um, with the components that would need we need to address social determinants of health, um, because health care is fundamental to um, to to health outcomes, but it's only a piece of the pie. We also we know that you can only get so far with health care alone if you're not addressing things like housing, employment. Um, basic needs, education. Those things are strong correlates to health outcomes. Um, And then within the healthcare system, you can integrate things like peer navigation, community health workers, recovery networks of support. Also, when it comes to overdose risk, definitely harm reduction, all these things, as well as treatment for um, trauma-related mental health problems, these things are all really strongly tied to health outcomes and addiction treatment and a host of other, um, host of other health problems. So that's one thing, universal health care, which addresses social determinants of health, also ending criminalization and promoting harm reduction as a national response to overdose, and the reason that I have an emphasis on national in that sentence is that there are local initiatives underway that do that. So in New York City, Staten Island has long had this thing called Project Hope, which was the brainchild of some community advocates for addiction treatment together with the district attorney attorney for Staten Island. So the court system collaborated in diverting people with low-level drug charges away from sentencing and towards treatment and pairing with a, a peer navigator. And this has actually been shown to have really good results. Staten Island now diverts over half of its people who are arrested on low-level drug charges to treatment and peer navigation. But the issue there is that it was really up to Staten Island, um, the city, New York City's whitest and most affluent borough to come up with this and implement it locally. It still hasn't been fully implemented in, for example, the Bronx, where which still reports the largest number of overdoses in the city. So we can't leave it up to local initiative because that's going to let more empowered white affluent communities um, implement things that aren't available elsewhere places like the Bronx, where people are dying of overdose often as a direct result of the criminalization of drugs, because once once they're incarcerated, their tolerance to opioid is, opioids is lowered. They're released into a situation where they're much more biologically susceptible to overdose because their tolerance is low to opioids, but they're exposed to very severe instability in housing, employment, access to health care as a result of their criminal record, so they can't get any of those things. And they're exposed to lethal drug markets with fentanyl being really predominant in the drug markets in New York, a, a highly potent, very toxic opioid. So we need to end criminalization to promote harm reduction nationally and develop um, through research and um, integration throughout our different sectors and society um, an approach to a biosocial approach to addiction and overdose. So I mentioned peer-based recovery networks, also things that bring communities together and strengthen them and give people a sense of connection and meaning, use of the arts, urban gardening, community-based organizations, uh, actually spiritual and religious organizations have been successfully recruited into this effort. Uh, And these these social technologies get almost no public research, uh, or clinical funding. You know, this this kind of activity is left to private foundations and donors as demonstration projects. And we need to reorient the way that we approach, uh, approach the problems of overdose and problem drug use to be a bu- really biosocial approach, not to mention just the fundamental um, strategies of Of investing in communities that have been disinvested, that have on the one hand um, seen the flight of employment overseas, but also particularly in black and brown communities, systematic disinvestment of public resources over the decades, beginning in the 60s with white flight from the the inner cities. Um, We need to focus particularly on those communities with economic development and reinvestment. um, And that's the justice part of it that's gonna that's gonna benefit all of us as a whole so I'll hand that over to I'll hand over to Jules
3: now oh thanks I'm gonna I'm gonna just keep this uh, short because I think Helena covered a lot of good ground I will say in the, in the book we write um, specifically about some advice for uh, advocates advocates and folks working in the policy arena but the, the, the couple things I just want to add briefly is, is one is more of a uh, what individuals can do, and um, white folks in particular, I think, really need to start looking critically at and exposing um, and working to dismantle systems of, of whiteness and white supremacy, um, because as we argue in the book, um, these really are uh, part of the way white privilege work is works is to make itself invisible. Um, and then just from the policy arena, we all, one of the things we also argue in the book is that race-neutral policies um, are not race-neutral. <laughs> so this idea, of, uh, it's kind of a critique of right, colorblind ideology. And that so from a policy perspective, we actually need to reject race-neutral policies and give very careful consideration to how our policies can explicitly redress the harms of racism. And when it comes to the war on drugs, right? we, we need to deal with the decades of harm that our drug policies have done to communities of color and think very carefully um, and thoughtfully about what reparative justice and repairing those harms would look like for communities of color. Um, And then I just also wanna say um, that uh, we need to make sure that people of color and those directly impacted by the war on drugs are leading our our movements for reform. So uh, I'm gonna stop there uh, because I know we've covered a lot of ground and just see if David wants to weigh in on this, this last question.
1: Yeah, I can try to be super brief as well, just because I mean Jules and, and Helena are. I'll just speak personally are Really inspiring people and in how they dedicate their time, their intelligence, and their energies to being active on these things. And and in some ways, you know, a lot of people reading the book might be like, well, what about me? I'm not some amazing social or political activist. How do I? How can I participate in this story? And I'll just say briefly that, um, that there's, a, there's a back and forth, a circular reinforcing relationship between how we think and how we talk about drugs and the policies that govern our interactions with drugs. These two things uh, build on and construct each other. And these structures don't, um, don't just last because authorities tell us stories and we hear them and believe them. Authorities depend on us to retell those stories, to, that we tell stories about drugs and the people who use them that reinforce this broader structure of segregated policies that's been doing so much harm. So we can all, we are all storytellers in our daily lives. We, we turn our experiences into stories and then we relate those stories to others. And so we can all push back against the ways, these segregated ways of thinking and talking about drugs and the people who use them that resist the racialized stigmatization of addiction, that um, that finds ways to understand that problems with pharmaceutical drugs are about corporate greed and not about uh, white innocence being defiled and things of this sort. And, and every single one of us can do that.
2: Well, th- Thank you all, this has been a, a wonderful conversation and the, this book is a, it's a long overdue um, reframing of the way that I think um, many, um, many people in medicine um, look at the opioid crisis and think about it. Um, and I just wanted to thank you all for coming on the New Books Network. And um, uh, let's just—we—I'm we, sure our listeners can't wait for, to read um, read the next things that you all are coming out with.
0: Thank you.